0: Welcome to episode number 53 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring director Travis Mills of the new Tom Sizemore drama, Durant's Never Closes. In a wonderful discussion about independent filmmaking, Travis Mills talks with us about his company, Running Wild Films, which he founded in Phoenix, Arizona, after graduating from film school at Arizona State University. Mills shares with us the process behind his incredible project, where he made 52 short films in 52 weeks, many of which you can watch right now on the Running Wild Films YouTube channel. And we discussed the development of Mill's latest feature film, Durant's Never Closes, and how as an independent filmmaker living in Phoenix, Arizona, he was able to get top talent such as Tom Sizemore and Peter Bogdanovich to act in his film. And from an independent filmmaking perspective, We discuss the nature of film festivals, as well as how to create a very successful crowdfunding campaign, which Mills was able to do through Kickstarter. This episode is an incredible guide for any independent filmmaker looking to have perspective on how to create a successful project. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. Don't forget, you still have a chance to win final draft screenwriting software by doing all of the above. Following us on Twitter at Jog Road, following us on Instagram at Jog Road Productions, subscribing to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions, writing us a review on the iTunes podcast page for the Road to Cinema podcast, and liking us on Facebook, Jog Road Productions. Do all of the above, and you will have a chance to win a free download of the final draft screenwriting software brought to you by road to cinema and our friends at final draft. And now we join director Travis mills as he talks with us about the making of his new drama Durant's never closes starring Tom Sizemore and Peter Bogdanovich. And you can learn more about Durant's never closes by visiting their website Durant's never closes.com running wild and by following their Facebook pages both Durant's Never Closes and Running Wild Films.
1: I thought at first we could talk a little bit about the background of your company, Running Wild Films, and uh, you know why you initially founded it and what were your goals at the very beginning.
2: Started the company in 2010 with a uh, professor of mine from ASU Film School. He retired, and I graduated. His name is Gus Edwards. He was a playwright uh, with... NEC, uh, which is a famous African-American theater company um, that started up in the 70s and 80s New York. He came to ASU and, and became a film professor there eventually, and um, about a year after film school, uh, I honestly just felt like everything I'd learned in film school was bullshit, to be frank, um, and that it wasn't how real independent filmmaking works. So with Gus's help, we wanted to start something new that uh, would involve making movies for micro budgets and a lot faster than I had been taught to make them and with just different tools. Um, So we approached the company with sort of that as the philosophy, but more importantly, with the idea that we would make movies in Arizona, clearly set here, oftentimes about Arizona, and without any intention of moving to L.A., whereas most filmmakers in Arizona or elsewhere want, want to you know find some kind of stepping stone to get to L.A. or New York, we had no intention of that. We wanted to truly build um, a sustainable indigenous company here, and that, that was the idea of running wild from the get-go.
1: Yeah, it's something that uh, you know. Of course, Richard Linkletter in Austin—he's been you know very uh, you know very set on staying there and making stories as well that you know stay within Austin, Texas. So um, you know, it's really admirable to sort of you know create something within your own environment and also to create stories that in, that are involved in that environment.
2: Right. Well, William Faulkner, you know, he, you know after dabbling around and spending some time in Hollywood. And, you know, I'm paraphrasing his quote, but basically he said, you know, that he realized back in Mississippi and Oxford that, you know, he could tell all the stories he ever needed to tell just within, the, you know, a 50-mile radius, radius or whatever, you know. Um, and I, I'm really excited when I hear any filmmaker working that way. Um, I just think that that's something that people should try more often. And and stay local if they can. So that's that's great that you know Linklater, like you said, is is promoting that idea on a bigger scale than we are.
1: I was curious. uh, You said there were so many things that you learned in film school that really didn't apply to the real world practical sense of making independent films. Uh, What were some of those lessons that uh, that you had sort of seen being uh, you know pushed forth in film school that you really didn't connect with? Well.
2: To me, film school is like making movies in a bubble a lot of the times. You know, you're, you're given so much, and, and it's an assignment, and so you're not really thrown into the real world where you have to be pushed to create projects um, with, you know, limited resources. Um, you're given too many resources, and you're not forced to, to do it, I think, often enough. In, in two and a half years, i made, like, three short films, And I should have made more, but that's all I was pushed to make. And then when we started our company, within the first year, we were filming our first feature film, and we created about 10 to 12 short films. So I think that's a much more um, realistic way to approach filmmaking is to do lots of work. And I think that film film schools kind of promote the idea of making short film make a really great short film submit it to festivals and that'll be your calling card and then filmmakers don't get it. enough experience with producing and directing whereas gus helped me you know look at examples like john ford going all the way back and how they learned to make movies you know making one and two reelers in the silent days and he made you know close to 50 to 100 movies before he made any of the ones that that were really aware of, you know, that we know as classics. So it's, uh, that's kind of the, the tradition that we went back to um, instead of that, you know, just make one film and make it your calling card. So that that's something that I think film school, at least mine, promoted that I'm not a fan of.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important uh, for filmmakers to create a body of work. And it's so important that, you know, one short film or one film project isn't your whole career that you should continue to keep moving forward, developing many projects at one time. And, uh, you know, you learn something new on every single one, I think.
2: Right. Uh, they don't really, in my experience, they did not teach how important failure is as a filmmaker. And that is, if I can teach, if I, if I could teach film students one thing it would be how important it is to deal with failure that you know every every film you make is not going to succeed and you have to learn how to deal with that and just move on and that's the approach that we took with Running Wild is that you know you, you make a movie you give it your absolute best and then you have to keep going and make the next film and I read actually the other day I read a quote from David Spencer kind of reiterating that, that, you know, it's never going to turn out how you want it to. So you just have to give it your best shot and then just keep moving. And I don't think students are prepared for that. And so they'll make a short film and tinker with it for two years and then finally release it. And it's like, no, you just got to keep working. Just learn from all those lessons. So that's, that's what we did there. And there were other things in film school too that, you know, shooting coverage and all of that, that was not really, they didn't really show us the alternate, um, an alternative method when it came to to some of these things. So, you know, they taught us the typical Hollywood way of shooting all this coverage, but they didn't talk about how Hitchcock shot zero coverage, you know. And so when we approached Running Wild, I was like, well, how do you make a short film in just a few hours, you don't shoot any coverage because you know what you want, and you shoot to edit. So I started to look at people like Ford and Hitchcock who, who did that kind of thing and, and try to learn from them.
1: Yeah, or even um, I think Peter Bogdanovich talks a lot about that, um, sort of cutting in the camera, knowing exactly how one shot will connect to the other when you're going to finally put it together. And you can see that like in The Last Picture Show and Paper Moon and so many of his films.
2: Right, and then the choices that he makes are seem so... Um, distinct, you know, you can tell he's making choices, not just shooting everything and deciding later and I think that's a key part of that method and that's why the Hitchcock work is so strong, because we feel with every frame that that he made a choice there you know Um, And Bogdanovich is great because he came from that tradition, you know, he interviewed all of those guys, Hawks and Ford and, and all of them And um, he learned from them. And one of the best compliments I've ever gotten is on the set of Durant's Never Closes. He was only there for a day, but he said two things that made me really happy. He said, whoa, these guys are shooting really fast, Um, which was, you know, quite the compliment to get from him. And then he said uh, said to one of our investors, you know, you have a good director on your hands because he knows what he wants. And I think that that's – A really key thing. So I was very, you know, very proud to hear those
1: those statements from him. Oh, it's incredible. And um, something that's, you know, as far as making decisions really fast, you were able to make 52 short films in 52 weeks. So um, from a logistical standpoint, just in terms of prepping something like that with, you know, just basic things like props, wardrobe, and then going into casting and finding locations, uh, you know, I'm just astounded. How were you able to execute that?
2: Well, that was really putting ourselves through a marathon to strengthen the ability to make those choices. You know, because I I went back before I came up with the 52, I thought about the John Ford thing. And I said, well, we're getting better, but we're taking baby steps. So I don't want to take baby steps anymore. I want to, you know, I want to throw myself in the deep end and, and have to either sink or swim. And that was the 52, and not just me, but there were you know, where there were many people that worked on it with me, and it was a struggle. I mean, there were some weeks that we were piecing the thing together at the last second. You know, we'd have a cast member drop out, a, you know, a day before, or it would rain um, and we couldn't shoot the film. You know, the, one of the five days in all of the year in Arizona that it rains, it rains on the one day that we're shooting outside for a film. Uh, so these kind of things, that would happen, and we'd have to come up with a solution, like making the movie a silent film instead of a, a sound film for, for the rain situation. And Gus, my partner, said it about it as, as well as you could, that when you're done with this 52, you will have encountered almost every issue that a producer director could encounter, and therefore you'll have just a wealth of experience to draw from in other situations. So um, it was a bumpy ride, but totally worth it.
1: Yeah, I think that seems like that would be the best idea for a film school, now that I think about it, doing 52 films in 52 weeks. And you probably learn so much more from that than you know making a couple films a year in film school, or, you know, just oh, yeah. came to me I mean, now.
2: <laughs> first of all, it's going to weed out anyone who's not really serious about filmmaking which I think that is another thing that film schools should do, you know, is just kind of put people to the test and see if they're, they're really doing this because they want to be filmmakers or they just like the idea of making movies. Cause a lot of people just like the idea of it. Um, and yeah, I mean, you would just learn so much. Um, so that'd be cool. And eventually one day I'd like to try to sponsor projects like that. Um, around the country in different areas and try to, you know, encourage teams of filmmakers to do the same thing and and fund those, but I'm just not in a position where I can do that yet.
1: Yeah, no, definitely something to uh, think about down the road.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, So I was curious, from there, transitioning into making a feature film where you are, you know, you're using a crew from Arizona, from Phoenix, that area, you're casting people, from that area, but then you're also branching off into, you know, established talent, uh, you know, such as Tom Sizemore for Durant's Never Closes, so jumping, and also you're trying to crowdfund the film, so transitioning into that and putting together those pieces logistically, uh, you know, what is that for you in terms of starting that process? Well,
2: to be clear, we've done three feature films before we did the fifth. So we completed some features. We knew we knew what it was like to produce a feature on a micro budget, but Durance was a whole new ball game for us. The, the budget was much bigger. Obviously, still still pretty small when it comes to a film like that. We did it with limited resources, but it was a beast. You know, working with Hollywood talent for the first time, working with SAG. Um, building an entire set uh all of the restaurant which is an existing restaurant in arizona but not one that you'd want to deal with the hassle of filming inside um we had to recreate that restaurant on a sound stage so there there were just so many elements that that made it um, just as difficult as the 52 but the way that i approached it was just uh with the attitude that I mean, every problem has a solution, you know, um, we'd never cast uh, anyone from Hollywood before, and a lot of my team was doubtful about whether it was possible. and And they said, "Well, how are you going to do this?" And I just told them, "I'm going to start calling agents," you know, and uh, I didn't use a casting director for that. I did it myself, and I just started calling agents for talent, and I learned the lessons as I went about negotiating and what they ask for and, and, and you know, what what makes them say immediately no and they're not interested and how to get around that. So it was really a, a situation of just trial and error. Um, and it, it, all the way through, you know, the pre-production and, and production and, and before that, the, the crowdfunding campaign. And thank goodness we had some experience with crowdfunding before that, and had learned some really great tips, um, so so we went in with, with some
1: tools in hand, hopefully that answers most of your question. Yeah, I've talked um, to some other filmmakers about crowdfunding, whether it be through Kickstarter or Indiegogo, and for you, what do you think were the keys to creating a successful crowdfunding campaign?
2: Well, I'll weigh in real quick on the Indiegogo Kickstarter thing. I like, we've used Kickstarter three times now. have never done Indiegogo. And I like Kickstarter just because it's the all or nothing thing, you know. And that's great because it's like if you're really serious about this, you're going to, whatever your goal is, you've got to make that to make the project. And if someone on Indiegogo gets half the money, well, how are they going to really successfully do this project with, with half the money? You know, um, So I like the all or nothing thing and, and that challenge. Um, one of the main things that people don't understand about crowdfunding, I, I feel like, is that it's a full-time job. While you're doing the campaign, it's, you have to give up so many other tasks to complete that one. Uh, it's posting every day, several times a day. In the first time we did it, we posted every two hours through Facebook and, and Twitter. Um, it's having a team behind you. You can do it on your own. Um, a lot of people don't do the research before they start their campaign. Uh, we looked at so many different campaigns and looked at the pros and cons of each, uh, including one that Tom Sizemore was doing at the time for a movie he was going to do with his brother and we saw the mistakes they were making. They weren't successful. And we changed it for ours. And, um, you know, it's, it's so many things. It's, it's doing the research, picking the right rewards, making a short but impactful video, and then not just making one video. You know, you got to have it, – it's like a political campaign. you got to have all these steps along the way. You can't just post a video – and, and post this campaign and expect it to run itself so you know every I think three or four days we tried to put out a new video um, interviews with me interviews with the author of the book table um, read footage with Tom Sizemore, anything that could get people interested you know um, it was it was not easy but uh, those are some of the things and then like I said just staying engaged with the campaign we have to give it a lot of time but every person that we um, every person that donated we would thank personally tagging them on Facebook and that is such a great tool because it, um, it excites other people to join in as well and if you can get on a roll then you know, every ten minutes, you're you're tagging someone because they donated to your campaign, and people want to be a part of what other people are doing. That's just how humans work. So, um, those are some
1: tricks that I would advise other filmmakers to use. Definitely, and making people feel part of the process and that they're they're informed about what's going on. Uh, because I've you know I've observed other crowdfunding campaigns from various filmmakers, and they don't seem to have that sense that they have to continue doing it, that it's not sort of just like a one-and-done thing. You post something on Kickstarter, Indiegogo, and expect people to flood you. You really have to connect to the audience that's out there that's going to support you.
2: Yeah, exactly. A lot of filmmakers go in unprepared, and it's it's too bad. And um, I think that there's no real excuse for it because the tips are out there. You just got to look for them. Um, it's like right now we're doing whole process with Durant's for sales agents, getting a sales agent, you know, and distribution. And the more filmmakers I talk to, this is kind of sad, but I feel like they make these deals without doing much research at all. And you really can't do that. You can't can't just be lazy about any step of the process when it comes to making movies. You have to be engaged. So with this, I mean, any company that's interested we have called every filmmaker that we can find, whoever worked with that company, to ask them what their experience was. And you've gotta do that. You have to be like Andy Dufresne, I think is the character's name, Tim Robbins in Shawshank Redemption. You have to write a letter every day until you get all those library books, you know. Um, persistence pays, and um, being thorough pays in this, uh, in this game, so not that we're making all the right decisions. I mean, we've definitely made a lot of mistakes, but I I think at least we're giving it everything we've got,
1: so. Yeah, and then doing that homework, you know, I mean, even a simple thing of, you know, a company reaches out, go on IMDB, see who they've worked with, Um, you know, just sort of a great lesson I've seen. You know, people make mistakes in the past of, you know, somebody reaches out to them and they get excited and they just go with it, but you really have to understand who you are working with and, who you're making a deal with it's so important?
2: Totally, yeah. You and, and you know, filmmakers need to help each other out. And uh, one of my favorite things in this process has been talking to those filmmakers. Sometimes you hear some pretty sad stories about people that made good movies and signed with the wrong company and it, it just went nowhere, and that's that's tragic. But then you also uh, find people out there with with tips because of the mistakes that they made, and they're able to help you and. And then eventually you, you can help other people as well. So I think that, that I'm, I'm happy for that community and, and that, that we can share and, and help each other out, you know?
1: Definitely. Um, I'm curious for you, what attracted you to the story of Durant's, of this restaurant, of the history behind it initially?
2: Well, Durant in Phoenix is a landmark. Unfortunately, Phoenix is a place where history... Or at least historical buildings are not very well preserved. I think a lot of the reasons for that is because there's many people that are moving here that didn't grow up here. And so a lot of things are mowed down. And Durance is one of those places that's that's been around for a long time and doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And I passed it, I heard rumors that, that, you know, mob people used to hang out there and all these things. And then I started poking into it and I found out that the interesting part of the story is not the restaurant itself, but the man who opened it, Jack Durant. The more I read about him through the play that was written and uh, the book that was written about him, uh, I, I felt like he was almost a Jake like character. Uh, not in the sense of, the, of exactly, you know, they, they don't exactly relate in terms of their actions or philosophies, but... He's a, he's a character that has to be put on screen, larger than life. You know, someone who, there's a reason why people are still talking about this guy. He died in 1987, and, and people are still chatting about him here in Phoenix because he's dynamic. He was charming. He was dangerous. Uh, you know, he was, he was so many things. And um, Tom Sizemore said it best when you read the script. You know, we talked on the phone, and he said... Travis, this character has everything an actor could want. It has every emotional beat. Sadness, anger, um, you know, strength and, and, and weakness, just everything to play in one character in, in an 80-minute movie. And so I saw that in the guy, and, um, and, and it just had to tell a story, or at least you know, part of the story.
1: Yeah, when uh, when you conceived of writing the screenplay, um, were you also thinking in terms of budget, in terms of the scope of what you could execute?
2: Absolutely, because the book that Mabel Lero wrote about Duran is sprawling. I mean, it starts with her research suggests that you know this mysterious guy Duran actually grew up in Tennessee, and then he came out last, and he was in Vegas with Bugsy and. And, you know, it would be a, uh, you know, Goodfellas, casino-sized um, film. And I knew that we couldn't make that, or at least we couldn't do it in an effective way. So I thought, what would be interesting here would be to do a sort of day in the life with Jack Durant, where he comes to the restaurant uh, in the morning at the very beginning of the script. And then from there, we, we follow him. Um, throughout his day, he encounters you know, his ex-wife, and corrupt politicians, and you know just uh, problems within the restaurant and, and all that. So that was the concept, and I thought, okay, this is this is doable. Um, and I looked at movies uh, like all that jazz, and and some Fellini stuff, and, and just anything I could I get my hands on to, to kind of see how people had. Structured stories in unconventional ways, and how would we tell all of the things that happened with Durant in Vegas? And you know, we decided to do it through an abstract dream sequence, all in the desert, and just things like that. So it's like Orson, you know, Orson Welles was always a proponent of your limitations um, create great opportunities uh, in many senses because you're forced to come up with original ideas. Um, And that's kind of how I looked at it.
1: Yeah, it definitely allows you to even be more creative, you know, using those limited resources to sort of make things that you would have never thought about before.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. So um, sometimes it's frustrating, obviously, but also, uh, you know, you, you can't throw
0: money at problems. Therefore, you have to come up with some other kind of solution.
1: When you knew you wanted to, you know, put forth making this and you had, you know, your screenplay set and now you're in the process, you're, you know, you're going out to, you know, established talent that you want to connect with to bring on to the project. Um, just from in terms of, you know, transitioning from working with, you know, mainly locals, mainly local talent. I mean, what do you think is sort of one of your biggest lessons in stepping into working with established talent and sort of knowing um, you know, how to not only you know handle them, but sort of how to bring out the best in them and know that they can trust you in a way.
2: Yeah, um, there's a lot of aspects to that. Uh, one thing that I'll start with is, you know, when we first started casting to these people, Tom and and some of the others, a lot of my regular crew were worried that, you know, how are we gonna behave on set? How are we going to, work with these people, you know, is it going to be different? They sort of reached out to me with those concerns and I said, I don't care what these people have done. They're they're entering our world. You know, they're in our world now. And I really believe that. Um, he, you know, however many great performances Tom has given, um, he was coming to work on our project and uh, to be... You know, to trust me as a director, and uh, that's key. I think not to be intimidated by these actors at all. For an independent filmmaker, um, you can't be intimidated, or they'll just uh, they'll just trample over you if they have the opportunity. Some of them will. So, I approached it with that idea. You know, that these these this is no different than local talent. They're just they're just got better credits, honestly. But working, that being said, you know, Tom and I had a very, very intense and uh, um, good working relationship for a majority of Durant's, and he was very passionate about the character, which made a big difference to me. And I think one thing that was key for him was to feel my trust with his decisions. And to, to never feel like I, I didn't trust him. And I think I, I had that from the start, is I made a decision to cast him, and I never showed any, any aspect of, of not knowing that he could nail this character and constantly encouraging him that, you know, this is going to be one of your most dynamic performances, Tom. You know, and you got this, and, and your instincts are, are right on. And, and that was key for that. Uh, so it, you know, the, the part of it that was, I think a, a culture shock was just when we're working with local actors, there's no trailers, there's no, there's, there's not all this extra stuff, you know, and, um, that was a little bit different. It was different to, to work with someone who was mostly in their trailer when we weren't shooting. Whereas with a local actor, I would just tell them to stay on their mark, you know, <laughs> and do their own stand-in. So there were there were definitely some, some differences there. And as I go, I hope to get to the point where, you know, I read about Werner Herzog on the Bad Lieutenant shoot. He's one of my heroes. And kind of telling Nicolas Cage and Eva Mendes, like, hey, you're not going to have an entourage and uh, you're not going to. You're not going to kind of be treated, you know, like these, these princes and princesses. Um, you're going to, everything's just going to be very low key. And I would hope to eventually, when we have a little bit more control over these situations, to, to establish that from the get go with talent. Does that make
1: sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I think it's, um, you know, another aspect that you brought up too is, you know, it's not just about, um, you know, the, the talent having confidence in you as a director, but you as a director giving confidence to the talent and knowing that you believe that they can execute this part and that you believe that they can really give a, a whole contribution to the project.
2: Oh, yeah, that's so key. I mean, I think every actor pretty much is that way, that they're, they're all insecure to a certain degree. And if you show them at any point that you think that they can't do it, you lost them. And Tom actually told me that he said, you know, if if you if you turn your back on an actor, you've lost them. So you've got to establish that trust, and you've got to work with them in a way that they they never feel like that that you doubt their ability, but that that you can guide them.
1: Oh, definitely. Um, I'm curious about your schedule and how you went about shooting. Um, how many days did you have, and were you you know, as you said, you, know, you primarily worked within the The uh, the set that you had built. So did that make it easier for you to execute? Since most of the film was actually just in that one set that you had built.
2: Yeah, I mean, we shot in eight days.
1: Eight days. Pretty
2: insane. (laughs) Um, When we tell most people that, they're like, "What are you talking about?" And some days we shot fifteen pages a day.
1: How, How many hours did you shoot? What'd you say? Oh, how many hours did you shoot?
2: we didn't break the 12-hour mark. Incredible. <laughs> so, but that's, again, that's shooting to edit and knowing what you want, you know, um, and working with an incredible crew, you know, by no means am I responsible for that. I'm, I'm the leader of the ship, but you can't, you can't drive this ship unless you have amazing people working with you. So, um, you know, many of them I've worked with for years, so they know how fast we go. And that's why Bartonovich was like, whoa, these guys are moving fast. You know, eight days, um, an 80-page script. Some days we shot 15 pages a day, um, and I think the industry standard is what six, six, eight, maybe as a high.
1: Yeah. Sometimes four um, or five.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So we're double, doubling that, tripling that, and and Tom knew what we were getting into when we started it, and you know we we talked about it. He knew it was going to be crazy. But when you're actually in the middle of it, it's a lot crazier, um, and it was it was very intense. It was uh, it was just a crazy shoot, but a good one. And Tom said after we wrapped, after we did the final shot, he said, "I feel like we just played an entire NFL season in one week." Travis is nuts, is what he said. So. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, there was a lot of uh, intensity and and, and passion in in our shoot, but uh, I like working that fast to some degree. You just have to think on your feet, Uh, but it was definitely exhausting as well.
1: Yeah. What is uh, your process for shot listing and planning out um, what you need to accomplish that day, you know, setups, you know, anything specific as far as... You know, do you have storyboards that you work with or any pre-visualizations? Well,
2: one thing that was nice, I'll go back to something you talked about, the, the, it mostly being on this set. One thing that was nice is that when I decided to build this set, I thought, okay, unlike working in an existing restaurant, we can pre-light this thing like you would in the you know, 1930s or 40s, you know, on, an, on a Hollywood uh, you know, backlot set. And uh, I thought, okay, so we can, we can light this uh, beforehand with stand-ins, and all we'll have to do as we're going is make some tweaks. My cinematographer, who's great, he shot three features with me. His name is Nick Fornwall. He storyboarded everything, but in the we kind of have that as a basic guide. And then in the moment, we go through the action and pick, pick our shots, and we might throw three out of the five out and just keep two. And that's just kind of how it works. And I, I don't like everything to be so planned out. Again, I I like the feeling I get from Werner Herzog with let's just see the action and follow our instincts and say, okay, this is just going to be a two-shot. The entire thing is going to be a two-shot or, all right, the camera is going to track around them the entire time, you know. And uh just kind of feeling it out and being as flexible as possible. And thankfully, Nick is up for that and, and, and very good at that.
1: Yeah, no, it's always good. You know, you have your plan going in, but, you know, if you're flexible and you can be, you know, you can see what's on the set, you know, and know that, you know, you're not bound by what you have prepped, then you can really open yourself up to new discoveries.
2: Exactly. And you've got to be that way with not just the shots, but the script, too. I mean, I've read so much about Hawks. It, you know, But a film like to have and have not, you get there, they do a scene with Bogart, Bacall, and they're just all kind of like, or Huxley just feels like, this isn't working. And then they just stop, and they look at the script, and they rework it right there, and then go. And you got to have that kind of flexibility. Um, and that's another thing that, that I wasn't really taught. I had to learn it from interviews with filmmakers and just experience that, hey, if, if something isn't feeling right in the moment, Ditch the plan and go with your instincts.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you're only on the set for that one time, so you really have to take advantage of that because you, know, you can't go back. It's, you know, today's right. the day. You got to accomplish it. Yeah, and
2: with our budget, you can't afford reshoots um, and that kind of thing. So it's like, hey, this is what we got, guys. You know, we got to make the decision and go for it.
1: Oh, exactly. Um, I'm curious about the editing process and, you know, what changed for you seeing the film? you know, in its raw footage and determining what you wanted, what you didn't want, and did anything change from the original screenplay that you had had?
2: Very little, just because, you know, I write what I want to shoot, and then I shoot what I want to cut. So, you know, there were some... The the original screenplay did have sort of straightforward flashbacks, and then during a couple weeks before production, I told cinematographer, let's scratch all these flashbacks and just turn it into this abstract dream sequence. And he followed my lead with that, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. And, and actually, the people who've seen the movie, who've test-screened it, like that probably best. It's, it's one of the, the sequences people like most. Um, what was different in the cut really had to do with Tom, because what's great about Tom is, is he, he uses his instincts, He doesn't stick straight to the script or the blocking. And that's what's magnificent about him as a performer, is you just get these amazing moments that he really makes the script so much better. I mean, I think we went in with a solid screenplay, but what he added to it just made it such a more powerful film. And whether that be a a funny improvisation or or something just very real and, and, and emotional... Um, and and that's why I think that really he's an underappreciated talent and, um, because of his own decisions in the past and just because of maybe not, not the right opportunities or or whatever, a lot of people have not seen that part of him, but he's really on the level of De Niro, I think, with his ability to improvise and, and, and be, be very, um, Instinctual in a a scene, Uh, so that was one thing during the cutting process was trying to work those improvisations in and make them make them part of the movie and um, and keep as many of them as I possibly could, the ones that added to the story. Um, I like to cut my own films. I'm not a great editor, but I'm a very fast editor, and because I shot to edit. I know what I want. So I like to lay down the first cut myself and usually do it within a week or two weeks. And then I get people who are much smarter than me and much more talented to come in and polish it up. So um, the editing process for us has always been very quick.
1: Uh, At that point, do you have ideas uh, as far as music that you want to use or any sound design? uh, Or is that sort of further down the road for you?
2: Sound has actually been a a very important thing for us. Very early on with our first feature, I started a collaboration with a sound recordist and uh, mixer named James O'Leary, who's one of the key members of our team. And I find it interesting that I never hear directors talking about their relationship with, with their sound guys. They always talk about their DPs, but they don't talk about their sound guys. And I actually have a closer collaboration with him than I do with any DP. So sound is, is, you know, it's 50% of the movie. So we're talking about that in terms of everything from ambience to you know, to music and, and all of that stuff throughout the process in, in pre-production and production and then, you know, as we're editing and, and the score and, you know, the first cut of Durant's, you know, throwing in all of these music cues um, to try to reach what we want and then sending that to a composer and saying, hey, you know, the, the track I have in here is from Don't Look Now, and obviously we can't use it, but I want something as close to this as, as we possibly can get, you know. Um, in, you know, using, so we use stuff from The First Connection and Don't Look Now and, and copyright music just to, just to kind of get the right feel for it. And some of those things were in our minds way before we even started shooting.
1: Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's important. I mean, sound, I feel like, is the most underappreciated element of filmmaking. But then when you look at, you know, someone like Walter Murch, who contributed so much to, you know, the conversation and Apocalypse Now, and um, even there's a sound person that David Lynch has worked with a lot, you know, it's really something that can, you know, give a, a texture that, you know, responds to the audience so much. Oh,
2: yeah. I mean, that's one of the biggest, you know, when you scream a rough cut for someone, and then you screen them a couple months later, the mixed version of the film, no shots could have changed, but the entire experience is different because of what's been filled in um, with ambience and and just what the the errors that have been corrected. It's it's just amazing, Uh, and and audiences don't appreciate it. And honestly, neither do filmmakers. They They don't put enough attention and Effort into getting a good sound person and making sure that sound is good on their films, and, and and also working with it as a creative element. Like you said, David Lynch definitely, but a lot of filmmakers don't use it effectively
1: enough. Yeah, I remember uh, I was reading William Friedkin's book last year, and he mentioned, uh, I think for The French Connection, you know, he wasn't happy with the you know the production sound. So for every sound effect in the film, he pretty much just re-recorded it, and he like created the entire sound design on the film i think uncredited so it's uh you know it's just interesting how and obviously you watch the french connection and the sound is just so visceral it feels like you're there so it's just you know it's uh it's an element that really can enhance a film you know more than people know
2: yeah absolutely
1: um i was curious for you this is something i wanted to ask before but um you know as a filmmaker how important are film festivals and at the same time Um, do you feel like maybe sometimes there's too much importance put onto film festivals in terms of what they can do for a filmmaker? I think that they are
0: important. I'm glad they exist. However, yes, I do think that there's too much
2: importance put on them. I don't think that filmmakers are really educated about them, especially in film school. Um, You know, I avoided them during most of my time uh, as running wild because I just don't know what, I I don't know if I agree with the system uh, of film festivals of this, you pay to submit, you have there's no accountability for whether your movie is even watched. Um, maybe you get in, maybe you don't. Then your film plays, it says it gets in, it plays in this foreign city. Um, somewhere, if you don't have an audience there, how are you going to get your audience? You know, it's, there's just a lot of things that I, I don't like about it. And honestly, I wish that film festivals focused more on local films than they do on bringing in films from the outside. Because now with, with, you know, Netflix and Hulu and YouTube and all that, it's, it's much easier to see movies from all around the country, all around the world. But something like the Phoenix Film Festival... I don't think the ratio is very good for the amount of local movies they show compared to outsider films. Why not, you know? Instead, that film festival should celebrate filmmaking in Phoenix and encourage um, Phoenix filmmakers that every year they're going to have a venue to showcase their work. So I I hope that makes sense.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I think unfortunately for a lot of film festivals that are in you know, areas of the country that are especially not, you know, Los Angeles or New York, uh, you know, or Sundance, for that matter, there's such an emphasis on, you know, bringing in uh, talent or bringing in, you know, names, and they want to, you know, overly publicize the festival in terms of that aspect that there sometimes seems to be a divide in terms of, you know, emphasizing, you know, the filmmaking community in that specific city, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think it should at least be half and half. I understand they they have to bring in big titles, you know. uh, But if they also put more emphasis into promoting local film, then they'd excite excite the local audience, you know. And uh, a lot of people, for instance, in our city, in Phoenix, they have no idea that people are making movies here. The local filmmakers are making movies here. They just don't know, you know. So... We need to get the word out so that the community can get more interested in in the homegrown aspect of things. Uh, At the same time with festivals, I I think a lot of filmmakers unfortunately think, okay, if I make a great movie, I'll submit it to the festival and it's going to get in because of its quality. It has nothing to do with that most of the time. I think it has to do with your connections. And that's kind of a sad, sad system but it's it's also realistic. And I have tried to, you know, from my limited experience with it, I've tried to talk about that with filmmakers as much as possible and say, hey, look, don't go in thinking that just because you made a great movie that it's going to be a success, that it's going to sell, that it's going to get, you know, accepted by Sundance or Toronto or even the smaller ones. Um, It's about networking and and all of that. Um, So that's just, that's just kind of how it is, and that's what that's what we're dealing with with Durant's right now. And I think we've made a solid film. We've submitted several festivals, and uh, it's going to be difficult for it to get in on just the merits of being a good movie. Uh,
1: even with uh, you know you have name talent in there, that doesn't does that do you think that helps in terms of getting into some festivals? Or
2: I think it definitely helps. Um, it definitely separates it from from the films without it. But still, even that—I mean, someone like Sizemore has made a lot of B movies. So one of our struggles is 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 letting people know that hey, this is like no Sizemore movie you've ever seen, you know. This and and so that when they look at it, they're more interested in watching it and taking it seriously. So it's still an uphill battle. Um, I think it will have a festival life. I just don't know where, you know.
1: Yeah. Uh, what is uh, your next step now with Durant's and in terms of, you know, seeing it being released and even, you know, navigating the business aspects of uh, selling it for distribution?
2: Well, right now, like I kind of said at the beginning of our conversation, we are in what I consider to be one of the most difficult times. You can, one of the just difficult times parts of the process you can be in, a, in as a filmmaker, and that's deciding who you're going to make a deal with and give responsi- the responsibility of selling your movie. And you kind of have to with a film like this. You can't sell it to all the foreign markets yourself, or at least not very easily. So we're in negotiation with a couple different international sales agents to take the movie to AFM and ESM and all these other markets. and. And we're really looking at those deals and trying to make the best decision we can for the project. Um, At the same time, deciding whether we want to approach domestic distribution ourselves or if we want uh, a sales agent to do that. There's just lots of things to be considered. Um, I'm very focused on making sure that no matter what, this movie comes out in Phoenix early next year because it's... The film will have a national and international audience, but it's a very important Phoenix movie about history here. And we have a good audience that's ready to watch it, you know. So I want to honor those people and make sure that it gets seen. But um, the movie needs to to be bigger than that as well. So we're just in that process of, of looking at those options and deciding exactly what to do. And in the end, you have to take a chance. Unfortunately, you have to take a chance and trust someone and, uh, again, learn your lessons from your mistakes.